and welcome to Real History, the podcast where we discuss films, fiction, media of all sorts uh, that has a historical basis. And we look at the degree to which we can uh, possibly learn, possibly uh, take on board something from the history content, or the degree to which it is all just a load of old tosh. Uh, my name is Hugh David. I am a I'm your podcast host, co-host, uh, co-producer. I am also a teacher of history for secondary school um, and obviously come to that with a degree in it. With me is my other co-host and co-producer, Jenna. Hi! Jenna, tell people what you're up to at the moment. So currently I am a master's student at Goldsmiths College, University of London, uh, studying mm-hmm. queer history, which is obviously very interesting. Um, I also work for the Historical Association on two different committees, including my local branch and head office. And I'm also part of the History Society for Goldsmiths as secretary and lots of other things. Because, yeah, I, I don't know how to say no, as I said last <laughs> time. So, that, is yeah. fair, that is fair enough. And, and I'm passionate about history. so. Uh, and it's that passion that is um, bringing us all of the guests that we're getting these days. So thank you, Jenna. Uh, and today's guest in particular, um, Dr. Bourne, if I let you introduce yourself. Sure. Um, so my, my name is Dr. Bourne, uh, Waitman Bourne. I am a senior lecturer at um, Northumbria University in Newcastle, and I'm a scholar of the Holocaust and genocide. Um, and I'm also interested in digital humanities um, as well as public history. Fantastic. Uh, I'm now all of us in this room, or on this call, I should say, are, are aware of what digital humanities are. I'm also aware that there are people who listen to this podcast who may not know quite what it means, although they can make an educated guess. Would you like to explain very briefly for the layperson what digital humanities constitutes? Sure. So basically, um, the idea is to use um, a variety of digital technologies, but also um, theory and um, approaches to both ask and answer new questions about the past. So, you know, in my work, for example, for my my book that hopefully is coming out um, in the next year or so, um, I do things like um, a social network analysis um, of perpetrators. And also I'm working on um, a 3D uh, digital reconstruction of a concentration camp um, so that we can look at, you know, what kind of spaces were visible, you know, what would someone be have access to and these kinds of things. So, I mean, those are two examples. There are lots of others, you know, things like um, corpus linguistics where you, you know, you, you read, you digitally read, you know, thousands of texts and, and draw conclusions that way. Um, mapping is another area. Um, just, you know, it, it works both ways in the sense of, you know, you can, you can answer questions with big data, for example, that you might not be able to answer or, or um, grapple with, in, a, in an analog environment, but also sometimes by being able to do that, you begin to see patterns that raise new questions that you wouldn't have thought to ask of the history. And then you go back and do sort of your standard history um, work on that. So that's another area that, that I'm interested in. Fantastic. Jenna? Yeah. Um, obviously, working as a modern master's historian, we are starting to deal with a lot more digital stuff like digital archives as well. So I think that would probably come under your work. Uh, today's film, uh, now that we are fully into our third season, we are looking at a fairly recent film and a film that generally got 
pretty pretty decent critical responses at the time um and i think is probably where the, where there are whether um I guess because uh, I know I know I guess has got a lot to say about it. Uh, uh, I suspect <laughs> this is going to become a fairly standard text in school, and certainly in school teaching, uh, if not uh, higher up. But I think that we're going to have to address. That's why we're going to address in this podcast both the things that work about it and definitely the things that don't. But 2016's movie Denial, um, which is uh, a mostly British-made film uh but it is about american an american historian uh well rather let me correct that uh, it focuses on an american historian and her conflict in british court with a holocaust denial writer uh, whose name i can't bear to pronounce but we're going to have to to get through this podcast <laughs> i said to you quite tastelessly that more women died on the back seat of Senator Edward Kennedy's car at Chappaquiddick than ever died in a gas chamber at Auschwitz. It is my pleasure to introduce Professor Deborah Lipstadt. Whatever the reasons that people become deniers, they often have an agenda which they won't admit to. Why do you continually denigrate the work of David Irving? You can have opinions about the Holocaust, but I won't meet with anyone who says the Holocaust didn't happen. Professor Lipstadt. I am that David Irving. And I've got a thousand dollars to give anyone who can show me a document that proves the Holocaust. I will not debate you, not here, not now, not because ever. You can't. Well, Irving's just sent us notice of a suit to be filed in the High Court. Miss Lipstadt has done very real damage to my professional existence. What did you say about him? I think I called him a liar and falsifier of history. You better get yourself lawyered up. A man accuses you of something and it's your job to prove he's wrong? In the US, there's a presumption of innocence. Yeah, not in the UK. This case is happening to you, but it's not about you. Auschwitz is at the very center of Holocaust belief, so it's at the very center of Holocaust denial. There were no gas chambers anywhere at Auschwitz. Here is one of the largest killing machines in human history. You know what it is, it's how we prove what it is. What if we lose? Suddenly it becomes acceptable to say the Holocaust didn't happen? The word denier is particularly evil. Well, freedom of speech means you can say whatever you want. The phrase is a poison to which there is no antidote. What you can't do is lie and expect not to be accountable for it. There are no holes in that roof. Therefore, there never were any gas chambers. No holes, no Holocaust. He wanted a catchy phrase. He's got it. Where's the evidence? Where's the proof? Not all opinions are equal. But I'm not a racist. The earth is round, the ice caps are melting, and Elvis, it's not a lie. I'm not attacking freedom of speech. I've been defending my right to stand up against someone who wants to pervert the truth. Now, Deborah Lipster is the name of the historian um, uh -huh. who is portrayed in the film by Rachel Weiss. Um, the film itself is absolutely chock full of British talent. Um, 
uh, it's amusing, it amuses me that Vice is playing an American in it. I mean, I know she's played them before, but there, it's just one of those things where um, it feels like the, the, the standard Hollywood trope is flipped on its head, you know, where you're having to get somebody else to play British, you know, we're, we're, doing, it, we're doing it the way around. But you also have a lot of people who are probably even more recognisable thanks to television than they were uh, back then, although they were well known. We have Timothy Spall doing an, a, a, a very good job as the loathsome uh, 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 Irving, David Irving. Irving. Yeah. <laughs> Tom, Tom Wilkinson, we've got Harriet Walter, Mark Gettis, uh, John Sessions, Andrew Scott. Sorry? Andrew Scott. I was about to say, and I and, and, and I've honestly personally believe this is possibly the best thing I've seen Scott do. Uh, although at the time I hadn't seen it, he hadn't yet turned up in his dark materials. Uh, so I might have to say that that gives it a run for its money. But I genuinely think it's one of the best things I've seen him do. However, uh, for and also this is something, this is very recent. This is something we've lived through. We, we very rarely get to do a film on this show, podcast that is as recent as this in the events that the film is portraying. Um, you know, I remember seeing this about the, the reading and following this, following this in the press at the time. Um, I, I'm, you know, it, it's, it, it felt a little odd to be watching a film like that. Um, and I think that maybe might work to its detriment, given that all of us here are able to talk about the detail. But, um, but, but wait a minute, in your case, it's actually even more personal in some ways. Well, yeah, I was going to, and I was going to mention, um, you know, I, I rewatched it again, you know, sort of in preparation for this. And, um, you know, knowing Deborah, I was really quite impressed that Rachel really nailed her, her mannerisms and her accent. Um, I mean, this is not sort of as substantive, but uh, she, it was really good. Uh, you know, she really I, I, I found myself nodding and being like, yep, that's exactly how she sounds <laughs> and how she talks and what she says, which was really weird watching it, you know, come out of, uh, you know, Rachel's face Um but you know, for me, it is. It's a little. I suppose it's a. It's, it's, um, you know, secondarily personal in the sense that my dissertation advisor um, was Christopher Browning, mm-hmm. who was also one of the um, many. There was there were three or four other scholars other than Richard Evans who uh, participated in the defense team, and were there to sort of prove various points of the Holocaust that happened. Um, and so he was one, you know, and so as a graduate student, I was fortunate enough that, um, you know, on those social occasions, you know, with a couple um, glasses of wine, sort of hear, hear about, you know, Chris's involvement with David Irving. And, and that was always interesting to hear. Um, and so I think that's possibly the most important thing we need to start with is the fact that the first thing that most people who watch this film will not know is this film very straight, very immediately straight, streamlines the storyline, cutting out people who were directly involved in this situation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the 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 defense is, as I think, laid out pretty well in the sense that... Um, they, they they show pretty clearly that the goal is to, you know, prove the events that took place that, number one, that, that Irving was claiming didn't happen. Um, but what you miss in the sort of focus on Auschwitz is that um, there are other elements of his work and of his life that other relevant scholars like Chris Browning um, and others get called in to sort of refute from a from a um sort of documentary perspective um to also include his his 
Irving's um, associations with far right and anti-Semitic groups and organizations, which is something that is a little bit hinted at in the film, but not hit particularly hard. And I thought it was interesting um, in terms of, you know, what is included by way of sort of fact checking the, the idea that Hitler didn't give an order or that we don't have a, a textual document that explicitly orders the Holocaust comes out in the film, which I think is really important for everyone to understand. Um, but of course, what's interesting is that one of Browning's roles um, as the guy who wrote Origins of the Final Solution mm. was to, in some ways, directly treat how do we as historians come to the conclusion, the right conclusion, that Hitler, of course, ordered this in some way, shape, or form, but that it's also possible for him to have done that without there being the stereotypical Nazi, you know, trail of paperwork. Um, so that's something that, you know, I guess insiders or, or scholars or people that are more well-read in the Holocaust might have picked up, but you don't necessarily pick up from the film itself. Um and I think this is sorry, Jennifer. You don't mind me jumping in. I just want to say from a, from a school, from a high school point of view, from a secondary school point of view, um, I think actually that's really, really important. Um, the the unit on the Holocaust in British, in British schools is usually taught in um, year nine, um, so kids are usually fourteen. Um, uh, some schools do it even as early as year eight, depending on how they've laid out their GCSE. And also there is a, a lot of schools choose to do a GCSE unit that is based on looking at um, Germany internally from the end of World War One through to the start of World War Two. And so this so, so there are, uh, you know, there are. There's a lot of it, 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 this is this this is a crucial part of how what we teach to a fairly young age, and so when you're teaching them not just history but about historiography and how we approach history, um, I, I'm starting to wonder if it's a bit of a shame that the film maybe left this out. I think I think so because you know the the point is raised by Irving, um, and and frankly is raised by a, a large number of deniers, and and. and in in that sense, he is correct. Um, mm. Historians have we we have not yet discovered the document where Hitler says, "Right on this day, I want you to begin killing all the Jews of Europe," mm. um, and likely because it doesn't exist. Um, but the reason it doesn't exist is is also likely because he learned his lesson with the the euthanasia program, where he actually did put pen to paper, and then it kind of blew up in his face. Mm. Um, so. You know, after that, he you know preferred to make his opinions known orally, um, and so you know. But but again, one of the the lies that you get from Irving is is this idea that if there isn't a document, then of course Hitler didn't order it. Um, you know, which is which is just on its face absurd because clearly something as important as the Final Solution would never have started without Hitler's agreement or or. Or yeah. order, right? The, the um, scale of it, the resources, the involvement, it would be... In, you know, it, it, the fact that they couldn't keep it quiet from... You, you know, you couldn't... It, it, people, there was a period of time, I mean, certainly growing up as a kid in the 70s, you know, where you get a lot of uh, adventure movies and war movies and fiction that look at World War Two without talking about this. And, and there's this kind of sense, people in Britain in particular, acting like this is something that was not known until the very last minute, right? Band of Brothers, for example, does does that, right? Mm. And I think that that is 
particularly uh, uh, inaccurate because the word had come out in a number of ways ahead of time. There were enough refugees fleeing. There were enough people able to travel before borders closed that there was an awareness of what was going on in the build-up then. And I think it, the fact that it was already getting out, word was getting out, makes it seem impossible to me that you, the people doing it don't know. <laughs> well, and the, you know, and the sense from the film comes across a little bit that um, that there are no sort of smoking gun documents. Mm. Um, and, and of course, there you know, there are, um, you know, you have the, the July, uh, 41 order where, um, Himmler or, or, or Goering rather in his role mm-hmm. as the head of the four-year plan tells, um, Heydrich and essentially Heydrich wrote this memorandum himself and, mm-hmm. and then Goering signed it, but it basically says, you know, to make all preparations, necessary preparations for the final solution of the Jewish question in Europe. Right. And so it's, it's also a question of, as historians, understanding what all the language actually means and that the players all knew what that meant. Um, yeah. you know, and so they may not say, I want you to take every uh, Jewish person in Europe and murder them with gas in a gas chamber. But when they say, you know, apply appropriate measures or resettlement to the East, etc., I mean, it's understood for the players involved, um, you know, what, what that means. And, of course, then for Irving... You know, he is sort of hung up on Hitler. Um, Just a tad. And <laughs> yeah, and so it, it's that that ex- also explains his his approach to denial in that sense, which is, you know, he he is hung up on Hitler. And so he wants to show, well, um, Hitler didn't order it and didn't know about it. And if, in fact, the Holocaust happened, which I guess he sort of hints at in some earlier work, it was sort of without Hitler's knowledge. And he was sort of, you know, um aghast and, and clutching his pearls that, oh my gosh, this is happening. But of course, we know that's not true. Um, um, I mean, can, can I ask you some questions, if you don't mind, about how, uh, given you work in this field yourself and you work with students and people who are you know interested in what is going on in, because this is current, you know, this is current study of history, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, do, how often do you encounter students coming into your room asking these questions or at the very least wondering about this other view i mean i don't want to i don't want to i don't want to to to, to give it the respect of calling it you know, right a, a, a legitimate take on history because i don't think it is but i mean i i think i have rarely come across a student either in the United States or here, mm. who has openly expressed sort of denial viewpoints. Mm. Um, you know, and I, I tend to find that most of the ignorance that I've encountered is is of the sort of well-meaning sense or just it's it's just ignorance because they just don't know. Mm. And mm. It, it generally doesn't it generally doesn't revolve around whether or not the Holocaust happened. Um, it's generally much more in the acceptable teaching sphere of things like, you know, did the Nazis intend to do this from the very beginning or did the Jews go like lambs to the slaughter? You know, these kinds of, of elements that are not really, they're not really denial, but they're not correct either. Um, Mm. so I, I've, and, and, you know, and there could be, you know, there could be more nefarious reasons of, of the fact that yes, people who, who believe this often do know that they shouldn't say that, um, or certainly not to a 
Holocaust historian. Um, <laughs> but um, but I, I, I've been fortunate that I haven't really seen – I haven't seen this in students. Uh, I've encountered mm-hmm. it a lot in the public and a lot on Twitter um, yeah. from various people, but not from students. But again, there's also – you know, quite often the self-selection of people who are, excuse me, choosing to take a Holocaust class. Well, that's what I was thinking. You know, may not be the kind of people that really don't believe in the Holocaust. Which is kind of part of the problem. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, it's, you know, the people that may need, it's kind of like when you do sensitivity training in the workplace for for tolerance, (laughs) you know, the the people, if if it's not mandatory, the people that most likely need to be there probably won't sign up to do it. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, the thing we've got to remember with all of this is that historical um, revisionism is actually an important part of our job. And the way that denialism works is that they try to spin it as they are revising it. They're just asking questions. They're just making sure that we are 100% sure that this thing actually happened because we don't want to spurge the name of, oh, Paul Goebbels or Himmler or Hitler himself because oh they're just such poor men oh what shall we do kind of thing um I mean I mean I there think are this many is... events that have been revised and we look at at different points of view but this is as dangerous as something as like lost cause with the American Civil War where things have been changed to basically make people feel better, I guess. That's how some of the denialism works. I think it's just to make people go, oh, it wasn't that bad. And it's like, no, it's probably worse than you thought. So. Well, I mean, I think, so, you know, having talked to Deborah about this myself, um, you know, I, she said she made the com- she made the comment to me um and and she makes it elsewhere that I think is the most important which is that holocaust denial is not about history. Yeah. It's about hate. Yeah. You know mm. because it is at its very at its very basic level it is either um you are already sort of deeply anti-semitic or you know perhaps in the case of people like Ahmadinejad and that kind of stuff you know that it will really hurt Jewish people if you deny the holocaust and so you do it to hurt them in that sense, you know? Mm. And I, I think that the point that, that you both have brought up is really important. And it's really unfortunate that revisionism now has a, a sort of very negative connotation um, because from a certain perspective, all history is, is revision. You know, I mean, mm. what Jenna is working on right now, queer history mm. is itself a revision of hundreds, if not thousands of years of history in which it wasn't talked about it wasn't examined as a as a category of analysis, and it's totally great that it is, um, you know. And and even within the study of the Holocaust, it is quite possible and has been possible to revise our assessments, our understandings of you know processes or, or roles of actors and these kinds of things, and it's totally fine, um, you know. But it all takes place within a spectrum of sort of acceptable ranges of debate, um, to which. The Holocaust did not happen is doesn't belong um, because again it's not really historical revisionism but this is precisely how people like Irving try to weasel their way into the debate and if you look at you know some of the more um, I, I hate to use the word important but uh, more important 
Holocaust denial or anti-Semitic organizations, one of which is the, the Institute for Historical Review. Yeah. You go to the website and it looks – it's very slick. It looks like, oh, you know, this is kind of like a scholarly organization and, oh, they're posting book reviews and, and articles. And then you start looking at it and you realize, of course, this is all anti-Semitic and racial and racist garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, but it masquerades. It takes on the form of academia. You know, yeah. to the, this – it sort of is, is in disguise as – yes, you know, exactly as Jenna pointed out, these sort of – the well actually, you know – and well, I'm just asking a question and how dare you, you know, mm. come after me for simply asking a question like what kind of censorship is this? I'm only asking, you know, did Jews actually die in gas chambers? Like why can't you just answer this, you know? But they know what they're doing. You know, it's not a yeah. it's not yeah. a question being yeah. asked from a forthright perspective or desire to sort of, you know, add to our historical knowledge, I guess. No, no, I agree. I, I think that's absolutely fundamentally the, the 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 issue at hand and 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 I think that I think given the criticism you made of what the film leaves out I think arguably that's the film's strength is it is, is it focuses entirely in in streamlining and and to be fair I think this is one of the things you get when you get someone like David Hare in to write a script you know you're talking about one of Britain's preeminent playwrights for 40 50 well possibly 60 years at this point um and he's going to streamline it down he's going you know he's going to 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 give it a it's what he does he's used to writing for the stage he's good at writing for the stage and this is in some ways a stagey film although Mm. Mick Jackson is 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 after his experiences in Hollywood, um, has become a document, uh, has gone from being a, a documentary maker of the 70s and 80s in Britain and, and, and maker of one of the great, great dystopian movies, Threads, um, to, 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 to Hollywood where he did, you know, Bodyguard and Volcano and, and big budget schlong. Uh, and he's come back this way. I think one of the things he's learned is when to open things out. Um, and that was something in the, when we were talking about before we started recording, um, wait, when you mentioned the fact that this is one of the few films about the Holocaust to show one of the great, truly horrific things within the Holocaust that is often hard for people to get their heads around. Yeah, I mean, and, and so what it does, one of the sort of last taboo or last boundary that um, exists, I think, in, in a lot of Holocaust film is is a scene in a gas chamber. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, even in, in sort of some of the great Holocaust films like um, Schindler's List for certain, um, and I would even include some like Escape from Sobibor just for, yeah. I think it's a good film. You know, they... They don't show that, and and, and even and, and Schindler's List comes close because it sort of gives you a bait and switch where you think the women that are accidentally transported to Auschwitz are in the gas chambers, but they're actually in an actual shower. Yes. Um, but Which this film appeared in Mouse before that. <laughs> yeah, and 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 this film, you know, only for a moment, right? I mean, it's not it's not gratuitous as it is in, I believe, the new. I believe the new Russian Sobibor film mm. does have a pretty gratuitous gas chamber scene. Mm. Um, I will say Yui uh, Bowles' Auschwitz film also has a is basically the trip to the gas camps as well uh, to the gas chambers. Yeah, so. you know, and and versus, for example, Son of Saul, which I think is an incredibly powerful film, mm. and it, it itself also manages to not show the moment of people dying in the gas chamber from people's perspective in the gas chamber. 
you know, and and I think that there is a a pretty solid, you know, almost spiritual or epistemological reason for that, which is that sort of the, the, the inside of the gas chamber at the moment when people are being murdered is really the one place of the history that belongs completely and utterly and irrevocably to the victims. Yes. Uh, you know, we, we cannot in any way, shape or form know anything about what that was like in the way that we can come to varying degrees of closeness to listen to survivors, talk about what it was like to do other things or have other experiences. And, and so I think for a lot of filmmakers, you know, that's considered to be um, sort of a frontier that they're not willing to cross because it, it involves so much almost imagination of, of awfulness um, that, that you almost in some ways become a perpetrator because you have to recreate this in your own mind from scratch. Um, anyway, and so I thought that the film was interesting in that it, it – in a film that is not really about the events of the Holocaust, that it felt the need to add that, um, which I felt was sort of potentially gratuitous and and not really necessary. Um, particularly since, and we can talk about this. Maybe we should come back to that point at uh, this point um, after we talk about the gas chambers, because I thought that the filming at Auschwitz was fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know what they did there. Um, Walking on the gas chamber. I mean, it. Anyway, we can come back to that. But yeah, I, no, no, please go, go, talk, talk, go for it now. I'm more than happy to to move on to that because it is one of the key scenes in the film. Um, you know, it's one of the scenes that Vice talks about where you know her reactions are not acting; they're real, and that was you know something quite crucial that they used that her, the director, lips that all mentioned in the promotional material for the film. Um, but also Hare and Jackson both talked about the the had the permission to film the respect that they felt they they were able to afford it, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm more than interested to go straight into that. Please tell well, us. Well, I mean, I just, you know, I I have worked closely, you know, with the Auschwitz Museum. Um, I've, I've, I've led tours there. I've led tour groups. So I, I've been to Auschwitz many times, Um both in the summer and the fall and the winter and the snow and the rain. So I, I, I'm, I'm very familiar with the place. And, you know, as I was watching it again with a more critical eye, I just thought, oh, my gosh, like they let these people traipse over the roof of the gas chamber. Yeah. And I just thought and also, you know, I, I in one of my past lives was as a executive director of a Holocaust museum. And I just thought, gosh, like you know i can't believe they're letting people walk on this because that's obviously off limits um to visitors um you can't you can't really access any part of the the gas chamber complex that's the the built part you can walk around the edges um but you can't walk on it and and obviously for some of the shots you know they had people down in the undressing room with the cameras to capture them walking down the steps and things like this and i just thought it was very interesting um and I would love to know more of the backstory with the museum itself, mm. you know, sort of how they negotiated allowing the filming of the film even in Auschwitz. Mm. Um, and then, you know, something as sort of potentially from my perspective, transgressive as walking on the roof of the gas chamber. 
Mm. Um, as well as that that the uh, the delousing room, um, mm. which I I have to go back and look because I've never seen it. Um, oh, wow. I suppose it it does exist there, um, and I thought that I, was really I've interesting. Seen it, um, I've not seen it in person because I've never been to the complex. Um, I am hoping to go as part of my studies because I do want to look into um, how queer people are represented at Holocaust memorials and museums. Um, that's what I'm really interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've seen the Lawson room on a Holocaust denial debunk video done by a chemist called uh, Miles Powers. Okay. And they allowed him into that room to prove that it was there and it was real because he was talking about the uh, Persian blue, right. the okay. leftover of the Cyclone B um gas and so they allowed him in to film and show because his videos had attracted a lot of attention and it meant they realized allowing him to come film that would actually help them which so yeah they the d rooms are there and they that they do get used quite often as um what's the right word um can't think of the words but sort of like they get used often in holocaust scenario because oh look at all this persian blue look at all this pigment we have in the this delousing room where they used the same gas apparently and there's none in the gas chamber or in the um because part the is it the uh literature report where um, a gentleman came into Auschwitz and stole right, yeah, um, some stone from the gas chambers from both uh, the temporary one that is what you're shown at Auschwitz now, which used to be also a uh, air raid shelter, but has been used for many different things, including a gas chamber, right, and also the old gas chambers after it blew up. And he gave them to a different chemist. And obviously they cracked them open and said, oh, no, there's no um, evidence of Cyclone B here. But they didn't know where it had come from. So they didn't treat it like it had come from Auschwitz and just gone over the top because the Persian blue doesn't actually sink through that much. Right. Yeah. It's all these different things I've learned just from... And of I've course, the so much about chemistry. It's weird. And of course, you know the, the there's another interesting aspect of this, which is of course that there is a much larger fumigation facility, the sauna, which is in Canada, um, not Canada, the country, but a portion of the camp called Canada. Yeah. And it uses it used steam. Um, you know, you had a, you had a clean side and a dirty side, and that's where people who were selected to live would actually go through, and clothes be placed in you know these big iron sort of oveny things. Um, and then steam to a very high temperature, but but gas wasn't used there either. Um, mm. But anyway, it's it's. It, I was very interested in the filming at Auschwitz, um, mm. Mm. you know, and the, you know, as a as a memorial site, you know, it's quite interesting to see, and then the, the choices that, that that a public museum makes to allow, because I'm sure there are lots of films that also would like to film at Auschwitz, mm. um, who are not allowed to film at Auschwitz. And, and yeah. that that may be good or bad, but it was it was interesting. And of course, yes, the uh, the reaction of, of of Rachel when she walks on it as a a person of Jewish descent, you know, 
yeah. was was very interesting to see, as well as um, as well as the, the the actor I'm forgetting his name smoking in the in the in the gas chamber. Um, yeah, it was just very it was very cringy, but I understand from a certain perspective, um, you know, why they might have done that because there there might have even been a look. This is actually Auschwitz. Um, yeah. moment to have to have there as well. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's one of the things I think is um, most remarkable about the film. Why, you know, going forward, if I were to, I would, I would definitely use this film in teaching. Obviously, you always contextualize media. You never just show clips without context, context, and you always ground it in the history you've already taught them. And historiography of what he looked at and to me a film is always just part of the historiography uh but i think i do feel it's i do feel it's interesting to this is where the behind the scenes stuff gets gets interesting because the there's the the featurettes are on youtube as well so you can actually look up but they don't go into the detail that you're asking but I, they do talk about the fact that they had to you know it was a, quite the process and sort of the thinking behind why they felt it was important to do that and to include it one of the other things i think is interesting given the streamlining and given so far we've talked about a lot of things that the film gets gets wrong or, or does that's different uh to films that that that, that have on related topic on topics is i think i am fascinated that hair writes a play where a phenomenal amount of the dialogue and actions is verbatim from the, the court transcripts mm. um that is quite a rare thing in historically based films uh, the most scriptwriters cannot resist the urge to transform and touch up. Well, I think uh, it's I think it's interesting because you know, and, and it works partially because Irving himself is such a flamboyant, bizarre character. Yeah. You know, and so he says stuff that is is just quotable. You know, and uh, you don't need to make it up, and it, it sort of fits as in a courtroom drama to a certain extent. Mm, mm. I mean, I think, and, and also the hair was also, and Jackson were both quite conscious of not giving Irving any more exposure than he'd already had through this. Uh, and I think limiting them, also, they, obviously, they don't want to get sued as well by him. <laughs> right. I know. I noticed yeah. that. It was very verbatim what he said was what he actually said. Yeah, yeah, he can't yeah. argue with that. Um, but, but that. But that struck me as being something really... Again, I you know I've used when I started teaching in, in the mid nineties, we histor- history teachers. There was a big debate within British education. There was a generation of teachers before us who were blanket ban would blanket ban the idea of using anything that wasn't a documentary in class. The idea was we should not use fiction in class. And as to quote his friend Paul Schrader, uh, Spielberg remade the History Channel on a regular basis. It started becoming something we had to talk about. Um, you know, I was teaching, I was starting teaching when you had Schindler's List out and you had Saving Private Ryan come out while I was in teaching and Titanic came out. And so these were things that captured the minds of teenagers and it was worth, you know, it, it, it became something important to discuss. And so I went to a conference very early on that the BFI held with, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the the educational foundation, because I don't know if it's still around, I don't think it's still around, but it was a Holocaust-related foundation who worked with the BFI and they did a conference and then a, a debate afterwards on 
what we should and shouldn't use. And they provided us, they spent the money making a VHS based documentary for us that was done in three to five minute chunks. Uh, that was narrated and was entirely factually sourced. Every every image in it, every every motion, every piece of video, everything was 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 sourced proper source work. You know, you and, and so they were saying use this. You know, fine. You want to show a bit of this when it comes to home video, just to get some emotional impact. Okay, but here's the real thing. Use this. And I always found it fascinating that year after year, I would show them a bit of Schindler's List. I would show them the real thing from this video and every time the sober reality from the documentary trumped Spielberg's emotion every time. I don't think I had a single kid in five years come to me and say, oh, I preferred Schindler's List. I think that's really, I think that speaks to the importance of using, you know, grounding these things in the reality of mm. what has survived that period. Uh, but then that, you know, brings us also to another thing that, you know, I think is important in this context, which of course is survivors. There's a, one of the huge points of debate with Schindler's List was the, the use of the survivors in the, in the finale. And that's been both praised and criticized. I mean, I know you want to comment on that, Wayman. Yeah, I mean, I was going to, I think one of the things that the film gets very right um, and does a really good job, I, I think it does a really good job with, with, the tension between Deborah and the um, defense team, you know, where they're coming at this from a legal perspective, and we need to win the case, um, because I mean, Deborah is a is exactly like the character in the film for for a lot of ways. I mean, she's very fiery and very outspoken and does not tolerate any any nonsense. Um, she appears like that whenever I've watched her talk. Yeah, I mean, she you know she she will go after you if you're wrong um, and, and you will feel terrible about it. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it, it's a really important moment that I think a lot of, of people don't pick up on, you know, um, and it's really nice that the film shows this, which is, you know, the survivors wanting to help um, and, and Deborah feeling like, you know, that they deserve to be there, that they should get up there and have a chance to, you know, to, to testify mm. um but testify you know testimony has different meaning and so it's a there's an interesting play on testimony in this film i think mm. you know because holocaust survivor testimony in sort of the the popular parlance is you know when someone comes to your school or the shoah foundation's visual history archive and it has a it has an historical component of, of sort of telling people what it was like to the extent that we can do that um, hearing from someone who was there, but it's also, in some ways, um, a, a, an oral history, a retelling, a passing down mm. of knowledge, um, you know. And it's also, in some ways, a performance. It's it's performing yeah. survival. It's performing, um, you know, a memory. Um, but testimony in the legal sense, of course, is different. Yes. And one of the things that the film gets very right, um, and this is this also you know, for me resonates even, even during actual trials of Nazis, um, in, in the post-war period is that survivor testimony as legal evidence, just like almost all eyewitness testimony is, is, is quite awful. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't help. Um, and the, the film references, 
you know, the Zundel trial where these these Holocaust survivors who are clearly not lying um, get put on the stand and humiliated by attorneys. Um, yeah. And it's and, and it's very it's very easy to understand how that happens because the kinds of legal points of argument that one makes in, for example, a normal murder case, you know, where someone is shot in a parking lot, etc., and you, you have witnesses, they just they're devastating questions when applied to a Holocaust survivor. Yes. Um, because it's, well, okay, what day did you see this guard kill that person? Well, they don't know because they were in Auschwitz. Um, they don't have a calendar or, or a watch. Okay, fine. Well, um, you know, what was the name of the guard that did this? And they may or may not know. Um, you know, what was the rank of the guard that did this? They may or may not know. You know, was the person that you saw him beat actually actually dead? Well, I don't know because I had to go someplace else, but, it, you know, they look like they were dead. Well, but you can't prove that they were actually dead, correct? Um, you know, and then and then even what was the name of the person that you saw him shoot? Mm. So you can even say, I, I saw this person dead, but you don't know the name of the person. So you can see what I'm doing. You know, if you're an, if you're an attorney, um, you know, all of these things are areas that in a normal sort of legal proceeding would be, you know, devastating. Um, but of course, we understand for survivors why they wouldn't know the answers to these questions. And so, what I think is really f- powerful and important in the film is actually that the the attorneys and the legal team is concerned with protecting the survivors from this experience. Yeah, because the survivors would expect to go in and be treated with the same kind of reverence and respect that they're treated when they go, you know, give testimony of the first kind I, I described earlier. Um, but they wouldn't because they would be they would be cross-examined and the sense would be certainly that that they're not telling the truth um you know and that would be i think deeply traumatic for them and so i thought that it was it's it's really good portrayal of of both the specific historical context of the film but mm-hmm. also the the more general um you know the more general approach holocaust testimonies survivor testimony which is an understanding that we all get things wrong yeah. in our in our memory of the past, um, you know, and and that's acceptable. That's understandable, um, mm-hmm. you know, and it's okay. But that in this scenario, that normal, um, you know, just either forgetting or misunderstanding, etc., would be sort of weaponized against these survivors, and would give Irving the chance to actually do that himself, which sort of adds yes. a level of. Um, of insult and humiliation to it, so I thought I thought that was really important. Especially um, as he was being his own solicitor. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, the, as, as as someone who did uh, uh, a degree which doesn't exist anymore, which was law and history, <laughs> many years ago. I this is kind of my perfect film in some ways. <laughs> um, I, I was fascinated, absolutely fascinated, things like that, and and the kind of. The, but also the perception, the, the notion of uh, these the British lawyers are, are a very specific breed, I find, and and only changing in the last sort of couple of generations radically. And I think um, I think the film does a good job of uh, wrecking, of capturing their the way their particular subculture, as you know, the way they view the notion, as you say, notions of evidence, notions of testimony, uh, uh, and the process of what they do. And, and it's, it's very interesting because it shows that they are fully aware of the potential psychological damage they cause 
or the 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 the, the way they reinv reinvigorate trauma in people's minds when they do when they follow so-called due process, but also um, the, the, that they also recognize that that's something that is a tool in their arsenal that they don't have to use. Mm. That, that in the right circumstances, uh, there, as in this case, there is sufficient weight of evidence, but also the, the, the very nature of the man himself will will t will will speak out if he is given you know it's almost like a game of entrapment i mean it's one of the reasons why i think and scott's performance as the lawyer is so good is because it is that game of entrapment that that the laying you know almost it almost using deborah as a as you know as, as as the sacrificial goat almost you know to bring david out um and and certainly from an entertainment point of view that's the way they play it i think i think that that's part of what keeps it interesting um i mean there's very much that 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 law and order moment where like yeah you know the the the, the person wants to confess like you want yes. to you know you want to tell them that you know yeah you know and 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 that then you know the 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 lawyer's job is simply to kind of work him up yes into into basically outing himself which you know one of the things that is um you know that that chris always talks about is as is sort of so amazing and it speaks to to Irving's sort of um, egotism, you know, and it, it comes across in the film a little bit, but um, is that basically Irving allowed his diaries to be used. Yes. That um, was the crazy bit. I you was know, like, and, <laughs> and he probably could have, he probably could have legally avoided that. Yes. Um, yes. He you know, yeah. but he sort of said, Oh, fine. I've got nothing to hide, you know, and, and Chris and others, they're just sort of amazed that anyone would do that because, you know, if I was on trial for anything, for a traffic ticket, you know, um, and I had diaries and they were – they would, I knew they would have nothing to do with anything. I still would not allow, you know, the court to have access to them. And it's just it's just mind-bogglingly egotistical of Irving to think, you know, that, that he is blameless in this and there's nothing – of course you can have my diaries when they're devastating. You know, they, like, they destroy yeah, him. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean – How much he seems to diary himself as well just – unbelievable amounts of diaries yeah yeah it's it's that the, the, the what, what i find it really interesting because there was a there is there is a you try to explain to people today who record their lives through instagram and 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 and, and snapchat and and so forth yeah, you try to explain to 11 and 12 years today the idea that once upon a time, if you wanted to record your own life, you were going to have to put pen to paper, right? And you'd have to, <laughs> and you'd have to assume that maybe one day somebody might read these, but they may not. There was no immediate audience beyond possibly a, a family member. And I, I find it, it, one of the things the film reminded me of is that era. You know, the Irving is, I, I, I remember so many Englishmen like him as a child, you know, as a teenager, as a university student, and then as a teacher. And, and I, they, they you know, the, 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 it, it, the internet does a good job these days of making light of a certain type of person and, and sort of boiling them down to the essentials. And it's that, that idea of the, the, the person full of confidence in themselves and full of, uh, totally unaware of the privilege that they, they inhabit. And he feels, you know, Spall's great as an actor. He's always been a great actor. Um, but I felt like he gets across quite easily, particularly when you're looking at all these other establishment figures around him, all the lawyers and the judges. You know, he gets across the degree to which someone like Irving is really quite frighteningly typical 
of a certain era of Englishmen. Mm. I mean, I thought that, it was interesting. I, I, I thought it was interesting, you know, and when I talk to students, when we, when we when I teach about or using diary or memoir, right, particularly diary, is that you know, and you can rarely say this, and it, it makes me cringe most of the time. But from the dawn of history, um, you know, people who write diaries are extraordinary people, meaning they are not normal because most <laughs> because. Because, well, because frankly, you know, most people don't keep diaries. No. Right? And so there's something, there's something different, not bad or, or good, just different about people who do, mm. you know, and, and, and part of it is that they feel like well, that their lives are worth recording, um, you know, and, and, and that's not necessarily an insult. It just, you know, I've never kept a diary also because I can't be honest enough with myself on paper because I'd be afraid someone might read it. Um, yeah. And so I think for some people who keep diaries, and of course diaries can take a variety of different forms, but people like Irving, some part of them consciously or unconsciously, number one, thinks that their life is worth recording um, and is, is, is very important and interesting. But two, they also – they are writing for an audience that will read this because yeah. why else would you – you know? write those million pages, you know, um, I think a lot of diarists do have in mind in some vague sense, a, an audience. Um, and I think that fits very well in with the way that Irving's character is portrayed in the film mm. as, as thinking himself perhaps more important in, in society than he is. Yes. Um, you know, and so the diaries I think speak to that in a certain sense. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's one of the most, it, it, you know, I don't want to be fascinated by people like him. I want people like him to not be anywhere near my life. But the fact is that the film makes it quite clear why people like them in gain traction and why they are paid respect uh, right up to the point where they do the unrespectable. Right. Um, particularly in a British context, I think. I mean, uh, could this have... Can you envision a situation like this happening back then, at least in America? Well, I mean, I think that the, certainly the legal system in Britain is set up to favor people like Irving. And at least, it, and it shows, it, the film shows this, you know, that mm. essentially the the accused is guilty until proven innocent. I feel mm. like I feel like in the United States, where libel law is the reverse, for example, um, and where you know, oftentimes if you lose, you're responsible for the legal fees of the person that you sued. Um, it makes it at least from a structural perspective less likely that this case would take place um, because you'd have less less like less likelihood of success. Um, but I also think, and I don't know whether this is true or not because I'm 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 a relatively new you know, resident of England. Um, but I think Americans have a much more rabid um, sort of radical acceptance of free speech. Yes. Um, yeah. And and that this would be viewed as free speech in both directions. Um, you know, and, and I think one of the things that the film does, and it's particularly relevant in the, in the era of post-Trump and, and during Trump and everything else, you know, is the idea that you can have freedom of speech, and, and I support that, you know, that if, if Holocaust deniers want to say nonsense, 
they should be allowed, I guess, to say that in a certain form and, and context. Um, but you're not free from the consequences of your speech. Yes. Um, and and so I think the film does a pretty good job of, of, of illustrating that, you know, that and, – and I think particularly that's the American case and that's also what people are not – somehow they've forgotten in the United States that, you know, at a certain level you're allowed to say racist or homophobic or misogynistic things. But if that means that the publisher wants to not publish your book or that the company that sponsors you drops your sponsorship, that's not censorship. Um, mm. That's the consequences of your action. And they are just as free to do that as they were to sponsor you in the first place. It's mm. like all these people decrying Twitter, currently banning thousands upon thousands of people because of their neo-Nazi and alt-right views and they're going oh it's censorship it's like no it's a private company doing what they want on their own platform it's not the same as free speech exactly i mean because you're still you're still you can still go spout off your nonsense (laughs) you just have to find another commercial platform to do it with or go to hyde park corner or you know whatever you know no one is limiting your ability to speak um a private company has decided essentially if we're taking the most ruthlessly pragmatic perspective is deciding that they're not going to make as much money if people like you are talking on their platform. Yeah. So they're not going to let you on the platform. And that's not censorship. No. And in fact, funnily funnily enough, didn't Trump make sure that that uh, had to be followed after the cake makers wanted to avoid (laughs) supporting a gay wedding? Right. I mean, you know, it's, so it's, it's like, you know, you, it, you, you, you got the law you wanted. Now what should be applied? <laughs> you can't have, you know, capitalism either you're either for it or you're against it. Right. Exactly. I mean, yeah. you know, you're either for the, the market making decisions. But if the market decides they don't want your racist or homophobic or anti-Semitic stuff. Yeah. Then you can't say all of a sudden, well, they have to do it when you didn't yeah. do it earlier, right? I mean, it doesn't the work. Schadenfreude of the last few weeks has been really quite something. I have to yeah. say, it's been quite cathartic. But I mean, so, I think uh, I, you know, I think you raise a sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, was it a senator, um, a female senator who wore censored on her face mask? Yes. While right. Speaking in the, um, the Capitol building. Yeah. And it was just like. Do you not get irony? <laughs> right. No. no, Americans do free speech. They don't do irony very well. Is that fair, Whitman? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I always thought it was it was funny after after um, Trump got deplatformed. You know that uh, he's like, I'm being censored, and people are like, you have an actual media briefing room in your house. <laughs> you know, with with access to every single news outlet in the world. You know, like you are not being censored, um, you know, it, but I think, you know, it, it is important this, this, this victimhood to get, to bring it back a little bit to people like Irving, you, you know, there's amongst the sort of Holocaust denier types, you know, I think, I think you really have two archetypal people, you know, you have the, the conspiracy theorist who will basically buy or get off on any kind of conspiracy theory you know they just they just love the idea that they know something uh, that the rest of the world is is duped on um and then you have people like irving who are appear to be certainly anti-semitic um and and perhaps combat 
their denial from that perspective or and in a combination of the two um but for many of these people there's there's i think they take a certain pleasure in being viewed as um or excuse me rather being under assault by the establishment you know and i am being censored i'm a martyr you know to the in their eyes they're a martyr to sort of the craft of history you know because they're trying to tell the truth and no one's listening and because what they're saying is is unorthodox or whatnot mm-hmm. and so you know there is a certain they want again it, it, as pointed out in the film and as we've just pointed out with regards to the the trumpists you know there is sort of a desire to have it both ways you know that you are an expert you are qualified you are a member of this community but at the same time you're not yeah you know, at the same time you're this maverick who is throwing everything you know in in flux mm, mm, mm. It, it is it, you know it is yeah it, i i i suppose in american sports we call it pro-am you know it's this crazy idea that you can be an amateur and somehow still you know as as good as if not better than the professionals you know in this field and, and as well as the, the the other layers that we just add to this it's 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 a, it's a horrible horrible hole to fall down and it's not the only uh radical perspective out there that is influencing people and younger generations and i just i i think for all the things we've pointed out about this film that that do or don't work i think the fact the film exists is very important and i think the fact that the film does as good a job as it manages to do with what it has despite having to put certain aspects to the wayside um, I think that's still a remarkable achievement in itself. Well, and I, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, looking back on this film in the context of now, yeah, you know, with, with fake news and sort of the anti-intellectualism, um, you know, and the idea that sort of scholars or experts even as gatekeepers is necessarily a bad thing. Um, it's actually kind of cool to see historians, um, and also sort of historians standing in as experts, you know, mm. getting some credit as, you know, these people know what's going on um, in a way that, that, that other people don't. And that, you know, as, as, you know, Rachel White's as characters, you know, as, as Lipsot says in the end, you know, that all, all opinions are not equal, which is very sort of uh, resonant now, you know, it reminds me um, there was a, a, it's a great Holocaust historian named David Marwell who was the, previously the director of the uh, Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York City. Um, but, you know, he also, for a time, worked for the OSI, the Office of um, State... What's it? I forget the name. It, it's, it's in the State Department. And it, they, were, they, they did the investigations of, of war criminals and things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he was a, basically an expert for that. And one of the things he worked on was the Mengele case and oh determining whether or not Mengele was dead, et cetera. But that's neither here nor there. The really cool thing is that he had a badge that said historian on it. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's, you know, that's sort of like, I think for all of us, that's, that would be like Nirvana, you know, is that we, oh God, yeah. we get the badge to walk around and say, you know, I'm an expert in this particular, this very narrow, but important particular part of the world. And so, in, in an age where I feel like some people just find – you know, this happens on Twitter a lot where people accuse you of being condescending for pointing out that you happen to be an expert in something. 
Yes. You know, and it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's the extent that, you know, I'm not insulting you. I'm not saying you're not intelligent. I'm simply saying that in this very, very small part of the world and of, of human history, I happen to be an expert, you know, in the same way that, you know, a mechanic is very much compared to me an expert in my, how my transmission works, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it's not, it shouldn't be insulting that there are people out there that happen to know something more than you. Yeah. Um, and you know, that it's okay when relevant to point that out. And so you yeah. see that in the film, um, you've seen that in the reaction United States to the 1776 commission, you know, with this is this bunk historical nationalistic garbage about revising American history. And so I think that's a good segue into what, you know, you both have been talking about because, you know, Holocaust denial is sort of the most extreme, you know, version of this. But we also have all kinds of unpleasant revisionist history um, about other things. So in the American context, it's this idea of of making everything positive. I think you see it in Britain as well with sort of why do we have to feel bad about the empire and about our past and these kinds of things. Yeah. And and it's the same it's the same structure it's the same skeleton just on a on a different sort of level than than this is yeah i mean i i pers as as somebody who can who who is who he is because of the history of empire i mean you cannot explain who i am why i speak the languages that i do why i have the name that i have without why i live where i live without understanding the complexities of the british empire um i actually personally over the years have grown to see it as an absolutely massive weakness i see i do not see the the i've i've been too many places in the world and lived in too many countries to to to, and been you know been had to leave where i would have been from but also already been an immigrant in that country and then an immigrant again i i find it very hard to understand uh the the rationale and and beyond an emotional context of patriotism and uh, uh, blinding loyalties to notions that of, of of things gone past and buried it's not to say that i don't respect them because i am a product of history and it's integral to who i am but that is not but i'm also i also try very hard not to be uh enslaved by it as a person, you know, because if I did that, then I would still be cheering on things that I have literally got no relation to whatsoever. For an example, for something like that is like the amount of times that I point out that Cheltenham, where I live, um, is literally built on the money of slavery. Mm. They're like, no, we had nothing to do with slavery. We're nowhere near the <laughs> And it's like, no, we were a leisure town. We yeah. were where they came to spend their money. Exactly. Look at where we are compared to Bristol, Birmingham and London. The fact that spa water happened to be really popular during the Regency period. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we've got all this Georgian architecture. That's why we that was all built on the backs of slaves. Yeah. Well, Britain was. And then when I point that out, people seem to think that I'm trying to shame them it's like no it's just a it's a fact aspect of our history it's just something we need to understand yeah yeah it's i mean like, I, I think this is and this is one of those things where um you know again i, I like i like the, the choice of the film because it can tie a lot of elements in and we've talked about already you know revisionism and how it's kind of unfortunate that that's the term the term that got attached to holocaust denial yes um, 
Well, you know, it's the because... term they rather use than being called deniers. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, you know, but, it, you know, in the context of the statues coming down across you know, the United States and, and the world, really, you know, and it, it's seen as this awful, you know, it's, it, in, a, in a weird way, there are some who compare that to Holocaust denial, mm. you know, but in fact, it's very normal. It, it, throughout history, there are rubbish heaps all over the world from all through history of people's statues that got taken down when people decided that they didn't like them anymore, you know? Egyptians um, made an industry of it. Yeah. Oh, there's yeah. a new pharaoh. Time to chip off the um, yeah. progress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. But then, you see, this is one of the, one of the reasons why I'm glad we still teach Ozzy Mandai's school <laughs> at two different levels, because I've always, like, even in English class, I've always like, yeah, history, guys. <laughs> this is normal. <laughs> the statue falls down or it gets pulled down and it disappears. This is normal. You know, can you imagine if you said to all of the, can you, you know, this is, oh, talk about recent events. I just remember, the, you know, the, the the end of the Cold War, supposedly, and, and you know, everything that happened across Eastern Europe, you know, or the toppling of the statues recently in the Arab Spring. I mean, what, that's okay, but this isn't? Come on, guys. You also, know, how many people knew who Edward Colson was before? Uh, let's not even get into that. <laughs> uh, we, we, we need to say that for a whole other podcast, I think. We, we've got uh, a whole other podcast. It was the Lisa, the Iconoclasm. The Iconoclasm, yes. That's the Simpsons podcast, we did do that one. Um, <laughs> which is one of the few ones I know some of the kids I teach actually listen to. And apparently oh, God. Hello. Uh, <laughs> right, so I... Um, Waitman, would you like to add anything else on the film? I mean, I appreciate that you've you've given you've been very generous with your time and your personal experiences, and you've given us a lot to think about here, as well as uh, relate. You know, made something that is terribly recent and yet already four years old, five years old. You know, connect to today. Um, well, I mean, I think I think that in the end, one of the things the film leaves us with that I think is is unanswered is this question of do we engage people like Irving? Hmm. And if so, to what extent? And if so, why or why not? Um, you know, because, you know, as Deborah, you know, Deborah's position is I don't engage them because essentially it is the equivalent of platforming them. You know, it's, it's, hmm. it's, it's bringing them onto stage, you know, if you will, to, to debate something that is not debatable. Um, and and I, I I feel that as well, but I also feel the other side of it, which is, um, you know, we saw this again to, to, to draw it back to sort of very recent events. There was a, a rather large outcry um, in in social media and amongst the historical community after the 1776 Commission issued its roll of toilet paper that goes for the report, um, <laughs> and and but there were some historians who were saying, don't even give it oxygen, don't. Don't correct it because there were all these threads on Twitter and other places where people were correcting it and saying, look how ridiculous this is. Um, and, and in conversation with some historians that I know, the thought was actually, no, we have to come out and and say this is wrong because otherwise it might get taken up as a, as a element of a curriculum somewhere. Yes. Um, mm. And so I think that there is still – even with denial, there is an interesting – an interesting argument or, or, or conversation to be had about where on the spectrum between complete ignoring of the, the phenomenon to, you know, full on debate on stage, do we need to be? Um, yes. Because certainly I would agree with, with Deborah that we should never have 
you know, tonight at the forum, you know, Waitman versus David Irving. I mean, you know, that's yeah. that's not that's not useful and it actually gives more oxygen and makes people seem legitimate when they're not. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, particularly as we see the social media world, you know, becoming more and more where people get their information, you know, to what extent do we need to have some level of debunking engagement, um, you know, explainers? And you even have that already sort of with Twitter, at least, you know, commenting, uh, warning people that this may not be true. Um, but then, of course, yeah. you know, devil's advocate again, what's the slippery slope of do I really want Twitter weighing in on, you know, the extent to which this portrayal of Elizabeth I is misogynistic? You know, I mean, it, mm-hmm. so, I mean, I think it's a, it's a it's still an open question of how do we engage with um, with racists and anti-Semites and homophobes and transphobes and all these people without encouraging them because, of course, as, as you see in the beginning of the film, when Irving goes to her lecture, you know, he, they like that stuff. You know, they like to be, you know, it's kind of like the old adage that when you wrestle with a pig, you both get dirty and the pig likes it. Yes. You know? Um, <laughs> and so we don't want to do that. But on the other hand, we don't want to give them a free microphone to sort of shout whatever they want, I guess. Do you feel that, because obviously it wasn't Deborah's choice to be in court or Chris's or anyone else's, right? It, that was Irving who brought them into court. But do you feel that courts of law are potentially a place or an important place for where where the, such debates should be platformed? Given what we said earlier about the different standards of evidence and proof that and, and, and the understanding of what they mean in a legal context. I mean, I think... It's a fantastic question, and, and I, I certainly don't want to bear the weight of the world for answering. Um, no, no, no. It's but, purely personal. <laughs> but, um, I mean, A, it depends on the country. Sure. So, for example, Germany has uh, much stricter laws about this kind of thing, and, and Irving has yes. fallen afoul of those, too. Um, yes, um, but, uh, and, and And Britain clearly has also a different way in which it's treated. You know, my sense... My sense as a radical free speech sort of advocate is that you really – it's difficult because at some level there is a slippery slope to this. Yes. No matter how offensive and wrong uh, you know, someone like Irving is, he or she does, again, as we've expressed earlier, have a right to sort of say that stuff, at least in the abstract. Yes. Um, you know, one of the problems that we're dealing with, I think, now is is at what point does that speech become incitement? You know, yes. does it become hurtful in a very real way mm-hmm. to people? Does it encourage people to, you know, commit crimes? You know, yes. um, and, and that's where I think the courts are most useful yes. um, because it's much more difficult for a court to decide – even, even you know, historically accurate or inaccurate, let alone sort of what constitutes, you know, just generally obscene speech. Yes. Um, so I, I think, I think there are probably better places to attack and deplatform. You know, for example, um, if David Irving had been a professor at a university, um, in history, he could be fired for that speech. Because it would constitute historical malpractice in the right. sense that he's saying things that are not true. 
Right. You know, conversely, there's a there was a very famous guy named Butts, who was a um, engineering electrical engineering professor at Northwestern University, in the United States, who was a Holocaust denier. But he kept all of that separate from his academic professional life. Um, and apparently, right. you know, he was a perfectly mediocre electrical engineering professor. And so he wasn't fired. So his free speech was protected in that sense. But had he been an historian, right, then he would have been committing malpractice. Mm. You know, and so I think there's some interesting discussions to be had about that. Um, you know, in a, in a would I like to see, you know, Holocaust denial and, and racist speech and all of that outlawed and, and wiped away from the face of the earth? Yes. Uh, but I, I'm not sure how one does that without a lot of sort of collateral damage. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, I think that that that's why I wanted to ask it, because I think that's literally where we are now. I feel like these mm. are the things we need to be wrestling with if we're going to restore any sense of justice and balance to the societies we're living in. Um, and I think I, I think it's really I think I think it's telling that here in Britain in particular, in the since the time of the film was released, let alone the original case, you know, the British court system has been is being constantly undermined and stripped back financially you know yeah. ability of people to, to attend things the fact that i'm seeing lawyers right now talking about cases being postponed by a year two years three years um you know this is why i think it's happening i think it's happening because i the, the, i think it, there are people in power who recognize the what the courts can do and it's you know it, it comes back to looking at things like what Hitler did on his way up, you know, and yeah. the rules and the laws that change. And as you say, this is a slippery slope, but at the same time, it's also one of the few things we have in a democratic system at some level to help regulate interactions between not just the state and people, but people and people. Well, my sense um, is that, it, you know, that on on one level, I mean, I'm not talking on sort of the, the criminal, violent criminal level. Mm. But at some sense, I think that it, it's always best if we can change the social norms yes. to enforce, you know, justice and righteousness, yes. than leave it up to the courts, you know. And obviously, that's the much harder that's the much harder task, um, you know. But we we look at I think the idea of at least as the right views it, the idea of cancel culture, mm. uh, you know, like oh, I got fired from my job simply because I said that, you know, insert racist thing. You know, and I think that at some level, it's it's okay if a business or an organization or a nonprofit, you know, is able to say, I'm sorry, but we don't feel like you're expressing views that are acceptable and tolerant, mm. you know, and and we're going to therefore not employ you anymore, mm. you know. And so it's those kinds of things, you know, I think about and, 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 and Jenna, you might have a, a comment on this as well. You know, I think about looking back to when I was a teenager and now about how ch kids, teenagers view um, being LGBT. Yeah. And it's just it's just fundamentally different. You know, mm -hmm. even even um, even people who are conservative, many of the kids, you know, younger children or younger people today who are conservative in the United States, for example, socially don't have an issue with LGBT, you know, it's, it's, it's something that has become just so accepted and should be that, 
you know, if someone were to sort of shout out something homophobic in a lot of high schools in the United States, they would get unsolicited, you know, pushback. Yeah. And and, and that is an, a sort of an, an epic amount of social change just in my lifetime. And so I, I think that that's, that's sort of the nirvana of it. Um, but conversely, we still need to punish the people who, you know, use slurs and, you know, enact violence upon other people. So it's kind of a carrot and a stick sort of phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, even looking at my daughter's generation, she's six and kids her age are already getting educated that same-sex relationships are absolutely fine. So she's growing up knowing that's fine, where I didn't learn that even being bisexual was an option until I was about 14. Well, she's had it from almost birth which is amazing and it's why we're able to start doing things like queer history and it's a shame there's only one course in the entirety of Europe that's dedicated to it but at least we're making baby steps towards it being even more accepted so yeah I mean and I think that's that's why what you do and what what Hugh does is so important in the education perspective because you know people my age not myself, of course, because I'm incredibly open to new ideas. But, you know, the older people get, the less likely you are to convince them of anything. Mm. You know, yeah. um, and, and important or unimportant. And so in a certain sense, you know, not to use a cliche phrase, but, you know, the children are our future, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and it needs to be, it's there where you change the norms in the long run. You know, you, mm-hmm. you in the education system, you know, in educating that, you know, this is a thing, a, a, the history, this is a thing that happened that was bad. And also these are things that these are differences amongst people that are okay. And that we accept and tolerate. Um, and then eventually those people become, you know, people of influence. Um, lawmakers and Yeah. You know, judges. and I think about, you know, what, what Jenna had mentioned earlier and I think about, you know, divorce um, and, you know, uh, blended households, you know, 50 years ago, mm-hmm. that would have been something that would be seen as sort of shameful or, you know, um, very, you know, difficult and, 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 and disgraceful. But of course now, you know, kids grow up and, you know, it's totally not a thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. My uh, brother is in an on and off again relationship with his girlfriend who has my nephew and that's treated as completely normal and that's absolutely fine while me and Jack are in a very committed relationship and I'm openly bisexual. So it's those sort of things wouldn't be possible, as you said, 50 years ago. And it's it's so amazing how quickly humanity has changed. But at the same time, as I said earlier, we've still got a long way to go. So I I mean I I would I would I feel like we've actually gone backwards in Britain. Personally. Well, yeah. I, I feel like we that there there was a point. I I feel like there was a point in the nineties, late nineties, where things were shifting in all directions, and you had a lot more publicity and a lot more media attention and focus on a variety of roles, options, 
beliefs, feelings that teenagers I taught then were readily embracing, both in terms of gender and in terms of race. And I have watched that roll back without a doubt, at the very least since Cameron was elected, possibly earlier. and it was something I fully expected to happen. I just never thought we would get to the point we're at today uh, in Britain. And I'm, I agree with you, uh, Waitman, that the kids I teach, there's a lot of things that they really surprise me with. I mean, I've made, I'm very fortunate in that while I happen to be in a county where everything's, or most school, the majority of the schools are grammar schools, which is something I did, never thought I'd end up teaching in. And I'm in an all-boys school as well. And it's also one of the relatively prestigious and influential history in Britain in terms of where the pupils go afterwards. I am fascinated at the fact that I can have a conversation about sex and gender and treatment of the of, of partners with an all boy group in of, of, of 17 year olds, right? And the the re, you know, they sound like they're streetwise and sighing and tough when they're talking about certain things, but the, but then the moment you talk about consent or you talk about respect or you talk about the way you treat people you are interested in or bit or seeing or partner interested in partnering up with they suddenly sound incredibly grown up and ahead of where i was at that age and other people in the 80s were at that age you know mm-hmm. um, so i think you're right i just worry that it gets hammered out of them later on if if, if you know I, I not that we're not as bad as japan i mean you know the reason all so many anime shows are set in teenage school is school because that's when they think it's the last time you get to be yourself and you're gonna have to conform later on we're not quite that mm-hmm. bad in Britain, but we're pretty close there's an immense amount of conformity that schools are trying to still drum into people and that i think is ridiculous and needs to go by the wayside um i think i see that with when i was an undergrad student like so many of the kids that were coming straight out of school seemed so confused by the questions that the lecturers were asking like what do you think and like the fact of you could question thing you could question the lecturers and that seemed to shock them mm. and like the amount of times that i got asked if in like my first couple of weeks oh did you know the lectures before you came here i'm like no it's just because i've been out in the world of work i'm an adult and treating them like other adults yeah it's and that seemed to shock people yeah but on that note i think uh because we're now so far off topic (laughs) As all our podcasts tend to do. I think let's 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 bring this particular session to an end. Um on the note that we all believe change is possible. Uh and as you say, wait, when social norms need to be uh are the key, education is the key to that. Uh and that's one of the reasons we have been doing this podcast and talking about the twenty sixteen film Denial. Yes. So uh, thank you. Uh, Waitman, would you like to say, is there anything you want to promote or anything you'd like to uh, tell people that they where they can find you or what you're doing? Um, no, uh, you can. You can <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm easily found. Uh, I'm easily found on Twitter. Um, 
I mean, I, I just think, you know, again, in all seriousness, what I would promote is I don't have any anything that, you know, if, if you want to look at my books, you can find them. Um, but my, my biggest thing is is to promote is essentially, and I mean this metaphorically, but, you know, punch your local Nazi. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, stand up when you when you see things like, you know, or people hear people like David Irving, you know, it, it makes a difference. Um, it makes a difference to you. It makes a difference to everyone around you. It may not make a difference to the person that you're standing up to, but it does make a difference. Um, mm. And, and, you know, part of knowing your history is being able to have those kinds of arguments um, and be able to sort of cite your sources. And so, you know, that, that's my, that's what I would promote. Um, punch your local Nazi, support your local historian and you know, stand up for what's for what's good and right. Fantastic! That's terrific. I've got a tear coming to my eye. <laughs> <laughs> Jen, what would you? Where can people find you? I don't want to say now because that was. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you're the co-host and co-producer. You've got to. <laughs> um, so you can find me at Nadeska Kitty on Twitter, um, mm-hmm. where at the moment I keep talking about Bridgerton quite mm-hmm. a bit. Um, well, that's because Bridgerton is absolutely riveting. I can't believe I'm saying it. <laughs> we're going to have to do that. We are going to. I was going to say to you, we're going to have to do an episode on Bridgerton for so many reasons. Yes. Um, then uh, I'm also now actually using Instagram, which is also Nadesco Kitty. Mm. Um, and I'm going back to the whole diary thing. The, the fact that some people can write every single day and I'm struggling to do a photo a day mm-hmm. is quite, yeah. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, otherwise, support your local history association, um, especially in Britain. Um, there's lots and lots of talks happening online and for free, which is amazing. Um, Goldsmiths History Society, although we are mostly for the students of goldsmiths uh we will be putting on talks every month and they are accessible to the public so um very soon we've got a talk from justin who is my course leader on queer history uh we've got a talk on vietnam i think coming up we have a book club it's all very fun um we're we're making do with the fact that we can't go out and although everyone's moaning about lack of alcohol, but that's students for you. So, yeah, it's go support all your local history things, I guess, is my main thing. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, people can find me at 48 Consultancy across most social media. Uh, there is also the Real History Twitter and Facebook pages you can talk to us at. Uh, wherever you've found us, we, be it Google Podcasts or Apple or at our uh, first run home our first run home at Bunkerzilla, wherever you found us, please like, subscribe, uh, leave comments, tell us what you'd like to hear in future episodes. We're more than happy to uh, look at films that we, uh, that you, you know, that you want to hear more about, uh, okay. tackle them and find interesting guests like to wait today to talk to us about the films themselves. Thank you, sir, for turning up. Really appreciate your presence as a guest and, 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 and for making us think. Um, which thank is you so a... much for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great. I love to go on podcasts and make them go twice as long as they're supposed to. <laughs> we'll have to have you back. We'll have to have you back. Oh, don't worry, me and Hugh do that, and that's on our own podcast. So, <laughs> right. Okay, folks, thank you very much, and we will see you next episode. Bye-bye. Bye.